0: Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. I struggle to give the person in this next episode a proper introduction. Monica Segrero is a good friend of mine who also happens to be one of the most badass people I know. She's a phenomenal leader who gives us great insight and advice. Moving to the US from Spain at 16, fast-tracking her education, moving around the country to being an integral part of the sale of a successful consulting business, this woman is nothing short of amazing. In addition to all of her professional success she is equally kind and supportive to those that are lucky enough to call her friend or family i have a great story that really encapsulates the spirit of monica one day we were working together and it was a really windy and cold day we decided to brave the elements and grab some panera as we were walking to the restaurant we saw a few homeless people sitting on the street i noticed them but didn't say anything when we were ordering food, Monica ordered additional soup and meals. I thought maybe she was getting extra for later in the day. As we left the restaurant, she stopped, gave the homeless people the meals. She never mentioned anything. She never made a big deal of it, and we just continued and walked back to the office. That one act made such an impression on me, and I challenge you, as, as I do myself, based on that experience, to be more aware and vigilant and seeking opportunities to help others. There's so much to get out of this discussion. Enjoy this episode. Let's talk a little bit. We'll just start and talk a little bit about your current role. And I feel like you're someone who, I mean, we've been friends for a while now. And I think one of the things that impresses me about you that hopefully we'll talk a little bit about is your, I would say your adaptability and your drive. Like those are two things for me that are so impressive. And I'm kind of envious of those things. So I'd love to talk about how you've cultivated and and developed those. But maybe for people that don't know you as well as I do, you know, we can give a little bit of context and start just talk a little bit about your current role. And then I know you had a pretty significant professional experience and opportunity with the building of a business and selling that. So I'd love to talk about that, spend some time there, and then maybe talk a little bit too about how you've navigated, you know, your own career through kind of these different opportunities. Because I think for you too, what's been really cool to see is I also feel like your path has been circuitous, right? It's not been this straight line and maybe not exactly what you would have predetermined for yourself. So welcome to Relatable. (laughs) Thank you. I am happy to be here. Uh, So tell me a little bit about, yeah, your current role right now.
1: Sure. So I'm a principal uh, for EY in the cyber group for the Americas. I lead a variety of different accounts and help clients with their cyber problems. Primarily, I did access management. So um, that's my main role. I also have another role, which is to shepherd. I recently joined EY about a year ago. And so I am helping shepherd The integration of the group that came forward from that prior organization into UI, and that that has Mm -hmm. also kept me pretty busy, and it's been a really interesting process. So that's kind of what I'm doing. I um, I'm loving what I'm doing as it relates to what we're doing to help clients, and I continue to be engaged in leading teams, which is really my passion. So uh, that's what I'm doing right now. And really, your
0: second stop with a larger professional services firm so not entirely new from that perspective in terms of professional services and consulting and being in that environment um but i think one thing i'd like to talk about and it'll dovetail i think into your work with sila which is when you and i worked together you left and started your own business and i remember thinking at the time Holy cow, is she crazy? Because we have this great security in this other larger professional services firm that I think once you're in that environment and there is a certain amount of, I would say, financial security, but also it is a environment in which, if you are bright, if you do work hard, it isn't always a total meritocracy. but it does seem to favor those types of individuals. So the fact that, You were at a crossroads, I think, and at at an intersection in which you did that. Maybe we could just talk a little bit about that move and what prompted you to make that move to start your own company, and then what happened as a result of doing that.
1: Sure. I had the fortune, so I'll go back a little bit before then, because I think that kind of uh, feeds into the story. But when I uh, came back to the D.C. area after having been away for a while, um, I fell upon an opportunity to build something with, uh, a couple of folks who, you know, had a dream of sorts yeah. to, to kind of create an organization, <laughs> a professional service organization with, you know, grounded in a variety of values. And, you know, it was really at that time, I was in a place where I could take that kind of a risk. I could had just relocated back to the DC area. And I said, okay, what do I have to lose? That was probably the most pivotal, uh, point in my career as it relates to the you know taking risks and and you know that it's okay, almost like the gaining the confidence that everything was going to be okay. So landed with this group of folks at the time there was three or so, and and we built something that then turned into the opportunity at another big four and then thereafter. Through that growing and building process of that in, initial uh, smaller company, um, I got the bug, I guess, of what it mm. meant to build from scratch. What it meant to have an idea, have a vision, and and be able to put the pieces together, and have the the ability and the flexibility to be able to put those pieces together to kind of take the organization wherever you want it. So, so frankly, I thought it was it's like a little bit like a drug, like you know you kind of tasted once and you're like you want to do that mm-hmm. again. So, landed in the big four. Great opportunity, learned a lot, got to meet people like yourself, you know, tremendous friendships and professional relationships uh, were built through that point. But after being there for almost four years, I was missing that desire to build from scratch, the desire for that autonomy um, in being able to influence where an organization was going without necessarily having to focus on convincing others that that was a good idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so I had turned 40 to be frank. Yeah. Right. And I was a in my life where I was like, okay, what do I do? Do I continue to do and kind of stay in the safe and, right. and see where this takes me? Or do I jump and, and try to start something again and and reconnect myself with, with that drug of building something from scratch and being an
0: entrepreneur. Let me ask you this question too. and, I think what's interesting at that time, because I did know you very well then, and we were actually working more closely together at that time, and it was a frustrating time for us. There was a lot going on that we couldn't necessarily control, and to quite frankly, there were some very difficult people in leadership that made the work challenging. And I remember this one night, you and I were instant messaging each other, and it was like one in the morning or some ridiculous time. And we were both having a very, you know, it was hard. It was hard. And I I think what's so interesting about you and I, I'm just thinking about this right now, these kind of two paths where sometimes you feel like you need to white knuckle it or stick it out because that's the right thing to do or the tough thing to do, or it's going to be better on the other side. So this idea of knowing when to cut and run versus when you just stay in something because you feel like that experience will then move on to another one and nothing lasts forever. And I feel like, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like for you at that time, you had already had that. I didn't, I kind of didn't think about it in the context of your other opportunity of being an entrepreneur and you really feeling that buzz from that. At the same time, I could have seen you because you are so dedicated and loyal being like, I'm just going to stick this out because that's, the opportunity i've been given yet you you know i think about the two of us and i think i stayed probably a couple of years too long with that mindset of you know i should just figure this out here versus like well maybe there's this other lane that's going to be a better experience for you but also your impact on others
1: yeah i think i had the benefit of Having faith that that other alternative yeah. was real yeah. and that it could be it like could you had done it once. into a yeah. better because of that prior experience. I'm not sure that I would have made that decision if I hadn't had the opportunity to see it work prior to that, you know, kind of that fork in the road. And I absolutely agree with you. I don't <laughs> think that there is really a magic uh, decision making tool that says, okay, when's the right time to pull, right. when isn't. And I probably would have been successful at both you know, in to your point, Um, I do believe that every opportunity is what you make of it. I think that has been kind of the the, the underlying um, theme to my life, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, make the best of what you have and uh, continue to make it the best you can. But at that time, because I had experienced what it was looking, you know, what it looked like, what you, what it could be, right, to, to jump Um, I decided to take a chance to do that. I was also in a position where financially I was able to, you know, I felt supported enough to be able to make that jump. Didn't have a lot of runway, but, you know, it all worked out um, well since I jumped and I was able to kind of leverage relationships that I had and, you know, that kind of then led into the relationship with Sila and then obviously the story thereafter. But, um i think it was the fact that i had confidence that i had seen it work before mm-hmm. that what was really the turning point and maybe a perspective i had that others wouldn't have had in that situation
0: and i think too the first time you did it that first leap right when you said you didn't have as much to lose it's interesting i have some interns working for me now and they're just starting out and you know this idea that you there's more you can risk early on or the you know and then you should right that i think I was seeking security so early, and it never even occurred to me to try to diversify and have these different experiences, which are so rich, and you get so much out of, and you get, when you do go to smaller, to your point, you went to something with three people, and and then when you went on on your own first, I mean, it's like you're doing everything, you're having so much more exposure to parts of a business than you would if you were in these larger organizations that have a lot of infrastructure and and you're just not privy to it. So then talk about SELA a bit and just that experience and maybe talk about two questions for you. One, the, the path and the growth of that, like how it started and what it became. And then, you know, we have a mutual friend and I think he's been a mentor to you and somewhat of a mentor to me. And I'd be interested in hearing how much that mentorship he or others right have provided to you also because I think that's a component of this that people sometimes miss out on like they've got to do it all on their own and they should be able to just figure it out and I think there's a big piece of having the right mentors out there to help you grow and develop
1: yeah I think if you know if we think that we can do things by ourselves I think we're fooling ourselves right and and sometimes there is a you know we might think that we have to have everything figured out and we need to know the answer for everything. And, you know, in many cases, I mean, well, I mean, in all cases that's flawed, right? So I think for me, there have been a lot of very key mentors along the way, specifically a person that you're talking about somebody that was a, a leader in my initial organization, at Arot systems and then also on the, on the SILA front. So I put out my shingle as Riverleaf coming out of the big four and was doing fine for about a year, year and a half, rebuilding um, a practice around information security and identity and access management, and it was great. Had stayed very close to those individuals from the prior organization, and there was a decision point where it's like, okay, well, we're interested in doing something in the DC area, you know, would you like to kind of take the lead on that? And so it just made a lot of sense, but it was really grounded on on trust and, and really that level of relationship. So the most important thing around why SELA and kind of the beginning of SELA was the alignment of values, like the, the doing the right thing, the taking care of our employees, the long-term perspective, the value on relationships, like there was a tremendous alignment between what I was building and what SILA was looking to continue to extend. At the time that I joined CELA or you know, kind of merged forces, especially to kind of grow the practice here in the D.C. area, CELA was mostly focused on other areas of the country. There was a big office in Seattle, another office in Connecticut that were focused on different things. And the opportunity ahead on the CELA front was to actually work with people that I had really enjoyed working with that had very similar values to me. There's another person that was leading the Seattle and the Connecticut activities who's become a tremendous friend um, and a source of advice and uh, sanity, for, for lack of a better word, right? right? The, the work that we do when we're working with people and the work that we do when we're building a business, it is very tough. And I think the role that we have as leaders to, you know, we we almost feel like we need to kind of hold everybody up and kind of always be positive. And so having a strong leadership team that you can trust to, so that, you know, they can help you hold off, you right. hold up <laughs> the fort, uh, I think has been really instrumental. But yes, I think the SELA the journey was one where we were able to build on that foundation of values. And even though we had different fractions of the organization that were focused on different things, we had an opportunity to have a strong collaboration from a mentorship perspective, the leadership at SILA, you know, they, they practice what they preached. And I think that that is probably the most important thing. So the grounding of value, always doing the right thing, you know, maybe we're not always making the right decisions, but always doing the right thing. It doesn't matter if it's the right thing for everybody. It's like always doing right by the employees and things like that was, was really key.
0: I feel like at one point, Our friend, John, I think we can just mention his name, (laughs) but I think he, I, I, and you'll, you'll maybe say this better than I will. I can't remember the words he used exactly, but the, what I thought was so interesting about the approach of the business you built and created, and I got to do some work with you from a consulting perspective, and I felt like it was a unique experience. Also, having not really worked in that type of way before, which is. That the professional services and the work that you did was really a vehicle, but that the values was really about development. And it was really about providing opportunities for people to grow and change and evolve. And like, this yeah. was the avenue. This was the lane. You you could create any business, essentially. Yeah. Yet this, and, and and it was market relevant. And I'm not saying, I mean, there's... There's a lot that goes into this around the financial acumen that you need in order to build a business and be successful in a consulting business. But I, I think what's so cool and interesting is that it was really just a mechanism to serve people, and that's what you're describing, and that's what he described. And certainly, as somebody that got to be a part of that for a brief period of time, I experienced that
1: too. Yeah, I mean, that's what I really what is about, right? I yeah. remember one of our big drivers was better for the experience. So it, it 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 didn't, you know, it was really more about creating an environment right. that would be able to make everybody that interacts with that environment better for the experience, whether it's the employees and their experiences and their growth and their development, whether it was the customers, whatever it is that we were doing for them. Uh, and then ultimately also the community, right? So there was that the desire was to, you're right, it wouldn't really matter what we were doing, right? It's like, this is an environment where we live a certain way, where we value certain things, uh, where we're looking out for each other. And, you know, really the biggest satisfaction was, you know, and people didn't always stay at CELA forever, right? I mean, that was never the idea, but, you know, I remember, you know, I would make the analogy, and I still do, that where I work and what I do is is a boat, right? So <laughs> we'll talk about rowing later, <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah. so it's, it's a boat. And so while you're in the boat, you're rowing with the rest of the team, you can count on each other to kind of get there. And, you know, you're better for the experience. There's a journey that you came along with us and you're going to be a better person or a better client or a better community as a result of that. So, so that was, and, and frankly, I do think that was somewhat unique um, from, from uh, what we were able to create. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would argue that 75, 80% of the people that were in that organization really lived that way every single day. Was it everybody? No, right? I mean, it's not a right. <laughs> you know, perfection, but live that way, believe that way. And I think that created an experience that was seeked and valued by everybody who was in that organization, or at least. Um, and you during, built during that, that during.
0: over 10 years?
1: That was about 10 years. Yes, So and, uh, nine years or so. Right?
0: And then you went from, how many people did you have with Riverleaf that then you brought and then it grew? So just like- There was about
1: 15 people or so that, uh, came over from a Riverleaf perspective. And then, uh, we grew to about 150 people. That's pretty amazing. Uh, from, in, in that, in that peace mind. Now, granted, it you know, I won't take credit for the entire growth, right? right? So I mean, the reality is we had, um, a ton of leaders, uh, and then you know, a couple of appointed leaders that joined, some of us have worked with us before that were also instrumental in that growth. Um, so, you know, I it will probably take much longer than the time we have a lot to right. kind of talk about the history and, right. um, but I think the success was really always on top of a value-based organization with a desire to better for the experience, do right by our, you know, our clients and our people
0: let's talk a little bit about or let's back up a little bit to talk about your degree and and i'd love to talk a little bit about spain and just you know your um experiences or you know i'm fascinated by what experiences a person has challenges successes or otherwise that shape that path and i'm interested in at some point where you like, oh, I, I definitely professional services is definitely my goal or yeah. right. Or just tell me a little bit about like what brought you to the U S or, sure. you know, yeah. How have you navigated yeah, that? I'll, I'll tell you a little
1: bit about the journey because it's not a straight line. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So <laughs> <And> <laughs> I love that because it never and, is. And and frankly, when I do talk to people that are earlier in their career, that is yeah. probably one of the, the biggest messages is like, you know, Success is what you define, but nonetheless, there are multiple ways of getting to to a similar right, place. Right, right. So I was born and raised in Spain. Uh, my parents uh, both work. Uh, my dad is an engineer by background. My mom is a uh, has a PhD in pharmacy and botany, but she's always been a researcher. So both were always working. So I have had the model of you know a working mom and a working dad. I came to the United States when I was 16. So my dad took a post with the Spanish embassy, to be a financial advisor for the Spanish embassy. And it wasn't because he is a diplomat, but it was just an opportunity given some things that he had done with the government in Spain. You know, it's just an opportunity that presented itself. So that's how we ended up in the United States. While we were growing up, so there's myself, and then I have an older sister, a younger brother and a younger sister. So there's four of us. We, uh, my parents, had always appreciated the importance of languages. So they chose to send us to a bilingual school. Uh, It was called King's College in Madrid. So I didn't learn English when I came to the United States. I learned English probably Mm -hmm. about the same time as I was learning Spanish. So that's a gift that my parents gave us that I never realized how important it would be later on in life, right? And they obviously would have never expected that we were going to end up in the United States, you know, many years later. But I grew up in a British school so I was going through the educational system the British educational system and there was a couple of requirements we have to meet for the Spanish system so when the opportunity presented itself to my dad um, I can actually remember the dinner uh, mm-hmm. at our house yeah. where that was announced and I think we all had a myriad of reactions some of them positive some of them <laughs> positive but that you know so we picked up and came over to the United States
0: Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information. 16, I'm... like your so- like a, that's the equivalent of like your sophomore year here. That's a yes. tough age to up
1: and... It was. That's crazy. And up and go. So... Yeah. You know, like it it was the first, the beginning of many changes, right? And the beginning of many opportunities throughout my life to have to figure it out and be flexible and adaptable. So we came to the United States because of the British system and where I had been in the British system. I actually could have started university right coming into the United States. So skipped a couple of grades, but my parents decided it was a little too young. So I decided, you know, they put me in high school for my last year that backfired a little bit because the, I think the culture shock of going into high school um, and the high school that we went in, the area that we lived in was a, a very affluent area. So it was culture shock from an American and Spanish perspective, but it was also, you know, culture shock as it relates to just the standard of living that people have and and uh, what they were interested in. And, and it, it was a not a, It was a tumultuous time for me, so I decided I just needed to meet my requirements to graduate, and I actually started going to community college at the same time as I was going to school because mm-hmm. I, had a, I had everything that I needed. I was just basically looking for a checkbox, so I, I graduated from high school. I had already completed a whole bunch of college credits, and then I went to the University of Maryland. Why did I go to the University of Maryland? I went to the University of Maryland because in Spain, you don't go away to go to college. Right. So <laughs> right. my parents were here so I could drive to the University of right, Maryland. Right. Um, and and that's what I did. I did economics. Why did I do economics? Because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that seemed to <laughs> be interesting enough. So, so I did that. And I fast tracked through my college education. And the reason for that was the big driver was my parents were scheduled to go back home to Spain. This was a temporary assignment, right, for my dad. Right. Um, so I wanted to be done, not to be a financial burden to my parents, and them have to have to pay college, international college, uh, for not just me, but the rest of my siblings. So I finished my undergrad really fast. And then uh, my parents got extended one more year, so I decided to go to grad school right after that. And I applied, and I got accepted to GW. So I did an international... Uh, business MBA international business finance MBA at uh, GW and I did that assuming my parents were going to have to return so I worked for the university and they were also financing my degree so that was um, what I did right after that why did I go to GW because it was a local i was still home my parents (laughs) were home and they were also a renowned university and they had a great program in what I wanted to do. So,
0: And is this, like, it sounds to me, I'm just curious, like all of these things that you're accomplishing and doing, it sounds to me like you're very self-motivated. Like, is anyone tapping you on the shoulder and saying you should consider grad school or you should consider, like, it sounds like you're so self-motivated and like you, I mean, I know you're a driver. It's because you know I've seen it in action. But I'm just curious. Like, it just seems like, how did you know to fast track these things, or is it is that just kind of how you're wired? Like, you're kind of.
1: I think it's probably a wiring. You know, I to to me it was more. I had a a, an objective, right? Right, Because it it was more about. I knew my parents had a clock, Mm -hmm. so I wanted to make sure that I was done with as much schooling as I could before that clock expired. Um, I did not know at the time whether I was going to have to go to Spain, or if I would go to Spain after that, or whether I would stay in the United States, whether I, you know, I wasn't quite sure that was somewhat uncertain. And I'll tell you the rest of the story. But that was somewhat uncertain. So, so it was more about get it done in the time that you have finish as much schooling as you can while your parents are here because they were financially supporting for most of my education for undergrad and partially for grad school. So I wanted to make sure that I was not a burden to them moving forward. So that was really the biggest thing, right? It. it was I, want, I had a goal. When I was at graduate school, you know, if you would ask me when I was going through undergrad, if, what do you wanna do? Well, I probably saw myself leveraging my languages and working for a multinational organization and traveling the world and you know, being an executive right. at some point. While I was going through college, uh, I met my uh, first husband. He was a Naval Academy grad. You know, it's not something that you plan. (laughs) So (laughs) fell in love uh, and decided that we wanted to get married. And we decided to get married right after graduate school. I think I had underestimated.
0: Right, that's young.
1: Yes, so I I was 22. Yeah. So I had underestimated what marrying into the Marine Corps was going to mean for my professional career. We got married and then we got shipped to Okinawa, Japan. So I lived in Okinawa, Japan, three years from there. I was in Pensacola for almost two. Then I went to San Diego and I was in San Diego for about five. And then from San Diego, we moved to DC. So that was kind of the marrying the Marine Corps back to that. You make the best with the opportunities that you have, you know, in Okinawa, Japan, what are do you doing in Okinawa Japan? You have a master's in international business finance, you have an economics degree, you don't speak a lick of Japanese. You know, Okinawa, even though it is Japan, is not a thriving multi-global, mm-hmm. you know, area. Uh, so what do you do? Well, back to being resourceful and having to reinvent yourself. I had a master's degree, so I could teach. So I taught for the University of Maryland University College when I was there. Um, we it was really fun and interesting to be teaching uh, people that were much older than i was Uh, but i had a degree so i was knowledgeable (laughs) and could impart business basic business concepts i could share so so that was a really interesting uh, learning experience i also taught spanish french and english off base to the japanese which was a way to connect with the local folks and then i also worked for the air force they had Non-appropriated funds, so basically not the GS system, right. not the official GS system, but for the local population, they had an opening in their human resource department, which is how I started. Mm, interesting, getting engaged yep. in human resources. You know, I was twenty-two, highly educated, uh, doing a variety of different things, and I learned a lot. I hunkered down um, and I focused on making the experiences that I had and the places that I was better than when I started. Right, so so I did that then. We got shipped to Pensacola, Florida. Pensacola, Florida, again, beautiful beaches, not the thriving metropolitan right. global setting. So um, I leveraged what I had learned in my previous engagement in my previous life, right? Three three years at that point, point. and I became um, a customer service manager for a staffing agency. So um, I got to do a lot of things around meeting clients, uh, understanding what their needs were talking to people, finding um, matches for what they did. And, you know, we're talking not very sophisticated skills. So mm. the folks um, that we staffed mm. in Pensacola, we I mean, were talking light industrial, administrative. Right. So that's what I did. Back, I to, did staffing
0: uh, too. Yes. It, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a great uh, it was, entry
1: point, right, to understand it. And frankly, I got to interact with a variety of people that I would have never interacted in my whole life, right? So it was a humbling experience around, back you know, work ethic and you know every the you know the integrity and just hardworking people doing a lot of different things, right? And also non very hardworking people, right? So (laughs) you see it all, yeah. uh, It was it was really fascinating. So left there, went to San Diego, back again. Every jump was a new start. So um, have to figure it out. And that was probably one of the things that is has been a constant throughout my career has been pick up and move leverage what you've learned and make the best of whatever situation you land in. So I worked for uh, I started working for Qualcomm there. And that was really the beginning of Mm -hmm. I got an opportunity to uh, get exposed to project management, business analyst using technology to solve business concepts or business problems. And I was at Qualcomm for about, I don't know, three or four years. And then I moved to DC. And DC was the first place where I was able to make a career decision that was not what can I do, but I want to pick the right opportunity for me to continue to grow my career. And that's when I started working for Iditarod Systems back to the where we started with a company of two or three people trying to build something and making a difference. So and then there was I did a rod, then I went to Big Four, then I did my own and thing, you had... then I went to CELA, then the UI. But along the way, it marked patterns are there was always And you had two kids in there. Yes. <laughs> and a divorce. And a divorce.
0: <laughs> yes. And remarried. And remarried. A great a great guy. Yeah, you know, I think It's so fascinating because I feel like you providing that detail and those different experiences and making the most of what you had, those experiences while you're in them, you can't possibly know the long-term impact of how they are connected to the overall outcome of where you land. And I think... What is very challenging for a lot of people that are newer in their career or that go to school like you did and you leave school, to your point, highly educated, feeling ready to tackle the world because you've put all this time in and then whether, I mean, your situation was somewhat because you got married and you had to move, but other people have other barriers because of economy, because of opportunity, right? And so- this idea that you pivot and you figure it out and you get the experience and then it all matters, even if it doesn't feel like the job you should have with all the work you've put in to get to that point. So I, th- I think it's important and it all influences how you can be a better leader, how you can, you know, in your, in your case, I think, when you started yeah. to connect with something and you're like, oh, at Qualcomm, like this is really what feels right to me. And that was how many years into your career?
1: That was almost 10 years into my career.
0: So that that's a great lesson because not all of us feel it immediately. And yeah. then, and I love what you said too about this switch that like you, instead of you adapting to your surroundings or figuring out what can you get and make the most of, then it's what do I want and how do I pursue what I want and be intentional about that. And I think that's
1: really- yeah. um, and in- and in life, right? So there's other choices that you make in life, right? So back to what you talked about earlier, as it relates to, you know, you were more focused on kind of having that stability, you know, kind of right. early on in your career. Right. Well, I mean, some of us had have kids, right? So, I mean, I didn't have kids until I was 30 or 28 or 30, right. which is, you know, sometimes it's later, sometimes it's earlier than others, but, you know, then that influenced and factored differently into what are the risks that I could take, you know, what is what is important in life? So I think it's, you can never look at one person's trajectory and say, okay, well, I can definitely mirror that. But it's the 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 belief that it's going to be okay. I think it's, it's a really important one. Like, it doesn't matter what it is that I'm doing. I'm going to be doing something. And then another concept, <laughs> I call it my marbles. Everything that I have done, every experience that I have done is a new marble that I can put in my bag. So, you know, imagine this little mm-hmm. <laughs> bag of marbles that you have collected along the way. And you're right, any one marble, I don't think you know the value of that marble when you're collecting it. You don't know um, whether that experience is going to be relevant later, uh, but you have it. And so I have found that I have been able to pull out valuable marbles, and it is those marbles that have really defined success later on. Does that make sense? And and yeah. And have helped me have confidence that it doesn't matter what things are thrown my way, I'm going to be okay. And I'm, you know, if I, if I focus on those marbles and leverage those marbles, it's it's going to be okay. So you're right. It, it's really hard when you're young to to know where you're going to end up, but you do have to have faith. And then also what you said earlier, is it really surround yourself with, with, you know, with key people and, and good mentors that can support you along the way. One of the things that I think has been important to me, is I have not had the luxury of being close to my family, right? So after I graduated, everybody went back home. You know, my siblings have lived all over the world. I never had the certainty of family being close by. So the importance of creating a tribe everywhere that I went (laughs) or finding Mm -hmm. those people that you can trust uh, to provide you support, whether in the work environment or outside of the working environment, in hindsight, I think... It's intuitively something that I always do. Does that make sense? It's like, you know, you look to surround yourselves and quickly identify those individuals that are going to be your support network, wherever it is that you are, whether it's a new job, whether it's a new neighborhood, whether it's a new city, what, whatever it is, because I've never had the luxury of having my family around beyond the time when I moved here. So,
0: And I think that being good at that, so smart about that in terms of those people that you're, picking right so it's interesting the way you're talking like i'm thinking about networking and network is so important in relationships obviously based on everything you just described I, i'm um i'm one of five and my sisters always joke around that like i have uh <laughs> what does my one sister say like i'm people are my commodity because i have a lot of friendships and i have a lot of relationships and part of it is that i'm extroverted and i love people and i'm curious by people but the other thing about that is that I am attracted to people for different reasons, right? So like my relationship with you and my friendship with you, we have certain like-minded things that we talk about and professionally we, we seem to be connected and even socially and, and then with another friendship I might have something different, And right? I, I think I'm sort of flex, and where you, I don't wanna say what you get out of that friendship differs and that's why you're in a friendship, but it sort of ends up that way. So like if I'm having a problem or i have having a crisis or I'm having a business problem, there's certain people that I'm like, ooh, Monica is going to be – I mean, I've approached you about certain things and I'm like, you'd be a great person to talk to. And I think to your point about these tribes or or building a network or building relationships, it's being a little bit thoughtful about finding smart, motivated, driven people that are going to kind of make you better, right? It's It's like – and I, I think some people aren't very good at picking. Like, I don't yeah. know if you've seen that where it's like, man, it's like who you surround yourself with is really important.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think it's really about sifting about the intentions of those relationships, right? So just like anything else, there's uh, it's sifting through and saying, okay, is this person's intention in this relationship other than just fostering a relationship and kind of helping each other. Right. And I do, I do agree. I think there, that is a skill, you know, the, the gut check, the intuition, you know, and I'm not sure how you necessarily, like if we were going to teach someone how to do that, it's, it's hard to put that in words. It is hard to put that in words, but you can find people that you can see that does do it well and then mirror. Right. Right. I mean, I, I do think it's a learned skill and I think you can learn it. I think you can learn it, but but yes, some people are stronger at that than not, and some people develop relationships for the wrong reasons, right? But it is about that self motivation. There's you know the trust equation. Uh, there's a the trusted advisor is a book that I recommend to anybody that wants to go in professional services. It tries to quantify the concept of trust, mm-hmm. and the denominator is kind of your intentions and being able to decipher very quickly in a relationship what are those intentions i think really accelerates being able to determine is this a good person to deal with or not a good person to deal with is this a person that i can count on or not a person that i can count on
0: and i will take that a step further that the more authentic you are the more genuine you are the more trustworthy you are so i think if you're on the kind of flip side of that and I'm not saying authenticity, like there's a lot now about being your authentic self and bringing your authentic self to work. And that's a little bit different than what I'm talking about, which is the more comfortable you are in your own skin and spending time getting that right, people react well to that. And the better you are at that, you can read it in other
1: people. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah. Um, I, I 100% agree. So earlier I talked about your drive and your work ethic. And I'm curious if that's something that's been innate to you or because I think in in you it's unusual I was describing you to someone earlier and when I talk about drive and work ethic with you it's I don't think I don't uh, connect it to ambition I feel like you're someone who I mean maybe it's similar to what you described with your schooling but it's maybe it's the goal or the objective but you definitely just seem to I don't know, your energy and your ethic and drive, like tell me where that comes from or if you can give any sort of recipe on that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that I have a, a recipe. I know. I'm also not much of a cook, so that, that, <laughs> that's never a good thing. But I think I've had good examples of that in my life. Again, my, my parents yeah, yeah. have always been a good source of modeling behavior. My mother taught me that it's okay to be a mom and a woman and also be professionally successful. You know, she demonstrated the juggle Mm -hmm. between home and life. And then my dad, I think, is probably the person that I see has the strongest work ethic ever. And I think that it's my strive to please my parents from a very young young age that was the driver for that. So I think that's really, it's just, I had very great role models mm-hmm. as it relates to what the importance of that was. And then I've just adopted that. Like there's, I don't ask other people to have the same work ethic, but I hope that through showing it, other people will, will kind of pick it up. Right. I mean, but I, I don't know. I just always, my belief has been, if you're going to do something, you might as well do it hundred percent. And if not, get off the boat. Right. So <laughs> Back to my boat analogy. If you're not going to row hard, yeah. get off the boat. And, and, and I think that was something that I got from my parents. And I think that their desire to do right and, and contribute is, is really what I've modeled. I, and don't I, know think, how to, I don't know how to better explain that.
0: I think it would be fair to, for people that are listening, to talk a little bit about what we mean. Work ethic can be generic. So I think when I, when I talk about it, It's exactly what you just described, which is whatever you're doing, whatever you're tied to, you're putting a level of effort that you're trying to make it the best it can be. Does it have to be perfect? No, like nothing's perfect, but there's just this inner desire to, like you could stop now, but I'm just going to take 10 more minutes. I'm going to take 15 more minutes, right? I think, and that's just a small example, but I, I, you know, to be able to somehow, uh, qualified so people understand what that means. And then I think doing that over and over and over again drives success, right? You, There's certain things that when you have that kind of barometer for yourself and then the just the output and the product. And then I was curious just in terms of the outcome then for you, there is there a sense of satisfaction? Is there a sense of confidence? Is there, you know, when when you do that and then you have the output of, you've groomed and developed 160 people that are now going out into the world and have this like core set of beliefs and values professionally that you, Monica, personally influenced. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at
1: I think I like how you describe the work ethic because it is what it is. It's, it's about doing everything that you're doing hundred percent and with, with passion. Um, I think yeah. that that's the most, like find connection to what it is that you're doing. And yeah. then that wants to make you be the best that it can be. I derive pride or satisfaction in, in a lot of different things. I am, yeah. Deliverable based, meaning I like to, you know, I like (laughs) to be able to see the outcome of my work. And that's why I think it's important that my work has certain quality. I have for the longest time to like, like you said, measured my impact and my work in the development of others. And that is probably the part that really drives most satisfaction. It is to be able to see people that you have invested time in uh, creating an environment that they can thrive in and providing them guidance and have them do things that they never thought they would be possible. You know, they would ever be able to do right. So, from you know, <laughs> from showing someone how to use Excel, <laughs> right? Which, yeah. And, yeah, And making a life-changing impact <laughs> of saving a tremendous amount of hours from You know, teaching someone V-look how up. to do a pivot table. Yeah. Yes, we look up to having somebody be able to broker a deal, a multi-million dollar you know, dollar deal uh, because they had the confidence of, of, of doing that from a presentation, from a skill, from someone being a leader a mentor to someone when they never had an opportunity. It is, I absolutely drive energy. I, adore, mm-hmm. you know, it produced a tremendous amount of energy and, and satisfaction and pride when I see people around me that I have had an opportunity to impact do things that they never thought they could do. And yeah. I, that's really, for me, Winning moments every day, right? And again, you can't measure that. You can't necessarily quantify that, but it it is it is probably the greatest sense of satisfaction, and it shows up in the most unexpected moments and and times, right? Mm -hmm. Along along the journey.
0: Well, and I will say personally, for me, I mean, you did that for me because I approached you about going out on my own, and I think that was scary for me, given my talking to you about that security piece and feeling like, can I really let go of that and You are a great, I think, coach and mentor in that perspective and then also giving me that first or one of the first opportunities as a solo entrepreneur. And I think just people having belief in you uh, or someone else that has that little bit of like, yeah, I know you can do it. It's all you need. And then that impact is, that ripple effect is so important. And I think, so if I haven't, you know, now I can do it publicly, but thank you for that because I think it all... Starts to build like just how you said with Iditarod and you that was kind of the thing that allowed you to believe that you could do this again. I think my experience with you and with a couple of others, it just was like, oh, I can do this, and then you can just roll with it if you yeah. put
1: in the time and the work. Yeah. Um, yeah, and on the reverse, John saw right, you know, yeah. believe that I could be more than I ever thought I was right, could ever be right. So again placing, somebody place trust and confidence at at a key point in your life is, is really catapulting you to make a change. And then now you are in a position you can advise others as it relates to kind of that. Right. So it's, it's a cycle. It's, it's really neat to think about.
0: Talk to me where I know we're about to wrap up, but talk to me about two things. One, I want to ask you about, because I, again, I think you would have an interesting perspective on this, which is you're someone who's, I would say tapped into all these different aspects of your life like when you think of the wheel and you think of like mind body spirit and you think of community and family and professional like you're someone to me who is pretty dialed in on a lot of those different segments and so can you just talk a little bit about i think of it in terms of like habits rituals like what are some of the things and i would also consider you to be someone that's very successful so I attribute some of those both personally, not, you know, personally you seem to be connected and feel joy and happiness in your life. And then also professionally you're, you're successful. So is there anything there that you've developed over time that you've found to help you that you would say are some of the, the things that have helped you reach success in both
1: those areas? I think striving for balance. (laughs) Yes. Yes has been something that I work on all the time. yeah. And and balance in every aspect of my life, right? So balance in work and home balance, balance in healthy and unhealthy, <laughs> balance in uh, pushing yourself and not, and relaxing, you know, like working really hard and relaxation, it, you know, and I, and I think if there was a good habit to pick up early on, and I've continued to strive to get there is really to, To figure out a way to find that balance and also understand that that balance is going to be off if you look at it in the margins of a day like on any given day i probably worked either too little or too much probably more too much than too little or i didn't work out or i worked out or or i didn't spend time with my family i didn't spend that but I, i i try to find balance in in matters of you know in this month did i achieve balance in these aspects of my life this six months did i and so I think that's a practice that I do as it relates to looking back and reflecting and saying, okay, am I being off balance too much in one thing? And you know, how do I recalibrate? So I think that's been something that I strive for that if I were to say, you know, or, you know, is that something that I could have done better? I think so too, but over time, I think that has been a driver for success because I have not over focused on any one aspect of my life and understand that while demands will change along the way, it's it's, you know, striving for balance has been really important. Taking care of me uh, has been also important. Mm -hmm. So um, I have learned over time and we were just talking about that a little bit earlier. I I have always been someone that looks out after others and, you know, always taking care of the needs of others. And I think, while that is a great thing to do. I think it's important to learn how to be selfish. Uh, And by that, be articulate about the things that you want throughout your life whether on the personal front or the professional life be a, a tad bit more selfish than you think you can be and not assume that because you're acting selfishly you're you know not going to be respected or other thing you know don't assume there's any judgment around being a little bit more selfish so i think you know, I was not very selfish earlier in my life. I have become more selfish lately. <laughs> and I think that, um, I, that that has been a good thing.
0: I love that. And I wish selfish didn't have such a negative, like a negative connotation. Because yeah. I agree with you. And there are some of us that are, and, and you know, I hate to say it stereotypically, it's it's women, right? I, I, I'm sure there's men that do this too, but Just given my tribe, (laughs) I relate most to that, which is we're almost bred or built that way. And and so to to not be or do, you know, that kind of family, everyone else first and me last. And I think the the unique perspective around what I would characterize as self-care or just putting yourself first is that it actually propels and builds momentum in a much more significant way than always putting everyone else first. And that took me, I'm 50, you know, it took me to now (laughs) to get that. And whereas I thought that the sacrificing and compromising and deferring was a good thing. I thought that it was like, that was what you do to, to put good out into the world and I think it is there you gotta have some of that. I don't I don't wanna give all that up or I wouldn't trade all that in. But there's some other habits that if you focus on yourself to your point and you're doing some self care and you're doing things that make you happy and you're that that just translates then to all the other aspects and you can do that even better.
1: Yeah. And it shows up in different ways, right? I mean it yeah. depends who you are as it relates to what you kind of need. Like yeah. I for me, three years ago, I decided to learn how to row. And because all my rowing analogies come from that, but (laughs) my son had been in the crew team, you know, I invest a lot of time in supporting that community and I decided to give it a go. The self-care that is generated or the re-energizing energy that is created out of having a good workout on the water or just being able to disconnect for that period of time back to your long-lasting effects, the long-lasting effects of that are much greater than any benefit from staying another hour and a half and helping somebody at work or, you know, like yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a trade-off that I had not necessarily appreciated early on. And, and I'm, you know, uh, that's right. just one example. So love- finding something that generates energy and, and calmness and disconnectness and something that you're doing by yourself, being by yourself yeah. away from the rest of your activities, I think has been a really uh, important aspect of that balance. And nobody judges anymore. You know what I mean, like the non-judgmental self-fulfillment, I think, needs to be part of what what people do these days, and especially women. I agree with that
0: before you go, really quick on the soft skills front, as you know, we've had a lot of conversations about my passion around this space. And so, When you think about your career and you think about how you progress and even your own kids and as they're maturing and and all the people that you've mentored i mean you've obviously done a lot with with in leadership what are uh one or two soft skills and i think you know what i mean by them but communication influence collaboration um, presentation those kind of things what are the one or two that have you think are pivotal to someone's success spending time developing
1: and you know growing them. I, I can think of a couple, I mean at, at the end of the day, I think you know listening is like really listening is probably one of the most important soft skills to develop. Coupled with that about 10 years ago, and anybody know, I think I've done this along my career, but there was a there was a labeling exercise. We had done something at Sila. And one of the concepts was the was MRI, which is most respectful interpretation. And the concept is basically don't jump into conclusions when faced with someone's reactions or with a piece of information. Always take the time to find out the rest of the story, put yourself in someone else's shoes. Basically don't presume and, and take the time to really understand the other person's perspective. And back to the listening piece, right? So you know, if I were to say the foundation of communication is by really truly listening, when you receive a piece of information, when you hear something, don't assume you have the entire story. Take the time to unpack what that looks like and put yourself on the other person's shoes as it relates to what they're trying to get out of this. What are they trying to say? How could they have said differently? I think that has been taking the time to pause and say, okay, am I really understanding this? Do you really mean what you're saying? I think has been a very important skill throughout my career and more importantly over the last 10 years. So the biggest advice that I give to everybody when they come into my office, and they're, you know, frustrated about something, I said, okay, stop. Let's take the most respectful interpretation. What is the information that you know? What is the information that you don't know? What could be going on in this person's life? What could be going on in the organization? Okay, try to look at it from that perspective. Now let's move forward. And I think that is probably I even have a little sticky on my desk that reminds me every day to make sure that I apply that. But I think listening intently, really actively listening, yeah. taking the steps to really understand what the other person is saying or doing or why are they saying and doing what they're doing has is, is probably the biggest thing.
0: I always knew we were kindred spirits because that's my favorite. And I agree totally, wholeheartedly yeah. that that's critical.
1: And then the other advice from a soft skills perspective, and I find myself being guilty of this, is uh, to understand the importance of first impressions. So I am one of those people that is quick to judge immediately. I meet someone within the first 10, 15 seconds, maybe a minute. I have formulated an opinion uh, of that person, right or wrong. And in many cases, it takes a while for that impression to be changed or be morphed. And so uh, my advice as it relates to kind of people Mm -hmm. earlier on in their career is to never underestimate the importance of that first impression and carefully preparing for any meeting to be that first impression moment, Um, because it is, it is critical, much more critical than we expect. And I know generationally, you know, I think we think less about, okay, well, it doesn't matter how I wear my hair or how I look or how I come across or what I'm you know, you should value me for my brain, not for anything else. I appreciate all those things, but the reality is that first impressions are key in -hmm. most cases. So MRI and the key of first impressions are probably the two things that I think would be most critical. And I assert that and reiterate that to my kids who are now needing to care about this as they're finishing up their schooling and, and going into the real world. But those would be the two things. Love it.
0: And last question, When you think back, which you've touched on, I think a little bit, but I'm curious if what your answer would be, when you think about everything you've been through and all these different junctures and intersections, what advice now looking back would you give young Monica? Maybe it's that 16-year-old Monica because that was such a big move, but now that you've been through some stuff, what, what advice or what would you tell her?
1: I would tell her, I, I would tell her a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I would tell her many things. Yes. You know, hindsight 2020, <laughs> 20, right? Um I think the maybe you know that the confidence that everything is going to be all right wasn't something that uh was apparent up front, right? I would have probably provided the confidence that it is going to be all right, that you know that that straight line that you thought was going to be the answer. Again, I had fast-tracked my education. I thought I was going professionally to end up in a place and, you know, do certain things, you know, that it was okay. Hindsight, right? That that it is okay to to make the best of every opportunity. Um, and you know, that that straight line isn't necessarily the only line, how many things I would have missed if I didn't go the curvy way, how many people I wouldn't have met if I hadn't gone the curvy way way. Right. So that's probably, you know, and I, I told, I would have told myself that and I would, and I tell that to my kids too. Right. But that's probably provided some confidence that it was going to be all right early on in, in, in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I'm not sure, you know, be more outspoken. I've been an introvert all my life. So I would have kind of put myself out there sooner and, you know, have, have confidence. You know, I come across a very confident person. I'm not a very confident person inside, but, I don't know. I, that's probably would have been that it that it is indeed going to be okay, and that surrounding yourself with the right people, grounding yourself in the right values, you're always going to be okay. It might not be the straight line to the goal, but you're going to get there eventually. So that might have been the thing that I would have told my my young self, yeah. who was trying to figure out what prom was and what was <laughs> homecoming, and who are all these people <laughs> and why are they so different? Right. That would have probably been.
0: I think that's great counsel. And certainly I could have used that myself. Uh, I think all of us recognizing it's going to be okay; It'll it'll work out and faith in the process. I think you are a phenomenal human. I love you so much. I'm so grateful that you did this with me. And I thank you so much. And I can't wait for people to hear it. So thanks for being on well, Relatable. And I
1: want you to know that I'm very proud of you. So, you know, making a leap and and focusing on the things that you think are important and making a difference along the way, I think you are making a difference. So I have been following the, the things that you've been doing. And I do think this Relatable podcast is
0: refreshing.
1: It's human. It's real. And uh, I appreciate you for doing that and inviting me to do this. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right.
0: Thank you, Monica. I loved all of your advice, uh, particularly how to develop others, the importance of self-care, your comments around listening and MRI, that most respectful interpretation, and really seizing opportunities regardless of the type or whether or not they fit into the plan. I think my favorite comment is how many things I would have missed if I did not go the curvy way. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and a thank you to our Relatable community and listeners. We're so thankful for your support and listenership. If you get a moment, please subscribe to the Relatable podcast, rate and leave comments. We can be found on your favorite listening platform. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.